Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, March 22nd, 2021. On our podcast today, Dr. Rachel Gerber returns to talk about another really interesting topic in fertility, pre-implantation genetic testing. Basically, this is when people undergoing IVF have their embryos tested for certain genetic conditions or mutations prior to implanting them in the uterus. This science has exploded in recent years, and the applications are more than you might think. And it's always fun to talk to Rachel. She's a great balance of smart and funny, which is probably why she's so popular. On Thursday, we're in for a real treat, as I'm joined by Instagram sensation Elizabeth Savetsky to talk about fertility and pregnancy loss, letting others know they're not alone. Elizabeth is an influencer with about 180,000 followers on Instagram, and she's been using her platform to bring awareness to fertility and to pregnancy loss. Check her out on Instagram. Her handle's her name, Elizabeth Savetsky. That's S-A-V-E-T-S-K-Y. And definitely tune in on Thursday for our High Risk Birth Stories podcast to hear her tell her own story. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Rachel Schwartz Gerber, how you doing from our Maven, New York? Welcome back to Helpful Woman Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This is great. Your podcast in November on egg freezing was a huge success. You said people are just flocking to you to get their eggs frozen? <laughs> well, yeah, I've had a couple patients come and say they heard it and that they connected to it and that they, you know, they really enjoyed listening and they wanted to come see me. So that's amazing. That's excellent. Yeah, that's good. And uh, and in this weather with 26 inches of snow, I guess it's uh, it's very temporal to talk about freezing things. That's true. <laughs> and more to come with the snow. So there was some controversy over the, the podcast. So one might think that the controversy might be over you know, reproductive ethics and this and that, but no, it was totally over the title. Further proof that men are useless. You you got a lot of uh, flack for that, yes? <laughs> I did get some people telling me, you know, I don't know if this is going to be taken in the right way, um, especially for our male patients, since, uh -huh. you know, we do treat both men and women. Right, so right. I was like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a joke. It's lighthearted. <laughs> I am a fan of all sexes of <laughs> humans. Yes. And, and also you could, it's like the whole thing when someone writes an article and then there's like a crazy title and they're always like, no, no, the author doesn't write the title. The editor does it. So you just blame Fox. He picked the title. Well, I picked course. the title. Yeah. I say I didn't choose it, but I think that it's giving it some, you know, it's giving it some, some clicks. So I think that ultimately some buzz, some buzz. So I think that's, that's good. Excellent. All right. So we're talking about pre-implantation genetic testing. So what is that? Tell our listeners, what, what are we talking about here? All right. So this is something that's been developed over the last 10 years or so. So it's a, you know, somewhat new technology, but has gone quickly and the technologies have just gotten better and better with time. Um, essentially what we do is, um, you know, we do IVF simulation, retrieve eggs, and then combine them with sperm and grow them out into embryos. So, you know, it used to be that we more focused on day three embryos when our culture systems, our ability to grow them in our Petri dishes, in our incubators wasn't as good. You know, originally they were 
what they were doing is on day three, taking one cell out of about eight and actually sending that cell for genetic analysis. And they were able to, you know, tell you at first they were just looking for Down syndrome and some of the other chromosomes that are could produce um, viable children, you know, Mm -hmm. that are compatible with life and to rule those out. But the technology advanced where they would get all, you know, 23 sets of chromosomes and they were able to tell you, you know, this is likely to be a genetically normal 46XX, which is female, or 46XY, which is male um, embryo. Right. So that's how it all started. Right. So the concept is for people who are undergoing IVF for either another reason or if they choose to do IVF for this reason, mm-hmm. before you decide which embryo to put in, you can sort of select out which ones are genetically, I guess, better in a sense, or don't have a specific genetic disease that they're looking for, or to screen for genetic diseases that they may be at risk for, correct? Exactly. So one of the most common reasons why people miscarry or why IVF doesn't work and the embryos don't take Mm -hmm. is because the genetics or the chromosome numbers of the embryos are not correct. So there's the wrong number of chromosomes, which are your large pieces of DNA that Mm -hmm. code for, you know, everything that makes us human. Ultimately, what they thought, you know, the original concept was, well, we know that this abnormal chromosome number is a major factor in infertility as women get older. And so if we can actually find these genetically normal embryos from a chromosome standpoint, Mm -hmm. we can focus our energy on those and potentially have better outcomes than putting in embryos where we don't have that information. Right. And prior to this, or either in conjunction with it, you basically went with how the embryos looked, right? There's certain criteria that this embryo looks healthy. You actually, you graded them, correct? Like yes. they got, like, like school, they got grades. They got grades and they still get grades. They still get, they still get graded. So yes. we're not pass fail yet. No, we're not. <laughs> you know, medical Everyone's a winner. pass, yeah. pass fail, but yeah. no, the so, embryos yeah. still get the grades. So at RMA, you do not hold that every embryo is a winner. <laughs> <laughs> if it produces a baby, it's a winner. Okay. We ultimately, you know, don't, care what the once you have a baby in your arms we don't really care and it doesn't mean that you know the baby's gonna be any you know there's no association between the grade and any like development or features of the baby it's just it does help kind of triage which ones are the most likely to implant right Right. so yeah they still get grades and you know people often have more than one genetically normal embryo Mm -hmm. you know in a very good situation and so you know, at that point, they might say, just put in the one that looks the best. Right. And amongst so, your genetically amongst normal your genetically embryos. Right. No- chromosomally normal embryos. Right. And the, and the way, I mean, obviously, the, the people who determine what the grades are, these are what, like the embryologists who the work embryologists. in the lab. And yeah, they look under a microscope and they say it's based exactly. on how healthy the cells are dividing or whatever. Exactly. There's some criteria. So the embryologists are like the unsung heroes. Right. right? No one knows who they are. No one knows who they are. <laughs> you you know, the doctors get to be the faces, um, you know, but the embryologists are so important. I mean, a huge part of what makes a successful IVF program mm-hmm. are the embryologists. So that's something that 
you know, patients definitely focus more potentially on choosing their doctor, but, you know, they really also need to think about choosing a lab and look at the outcomes of that lab because the doctor can be, you know, the best doctor in the world. If you don't have the embryology lab behind you, you know, it's going to affect the pregnancy rates. So we also joke that they're like the first babysitters. (laughs) And it's and it's true because it's in the lab, it's. I guess that makes the lab, the lab is the first daycare. Exactly. So, Something like that. It's, uh, it's, full, it's full board, though. They're there the whole time. And oh, potentially yes. for years and years and years they can, when they're frozen. But the embryology lab is saying it's, it's embryologists. So there's, you know, professionals, you know, who are trained to, you know, look at them and handle them. But also, like you're saying, there's just what is the fluid that's in the Petri dish? You know, that can exactly. make or break how the embryo goes. What is the air quality in the room? What is the, you know the backup generator like in the room in case the power goes. I mean, there's so many things that go into a a successful lab that people do not think about, obviously. Yes, all that stuff has been well studied and Mm -hmm. it's a big part of our field. And you can imagine New York, it's expensive to put in place all those systems, but we have we have it all. And, you know, it's where it's where you spend the money is to make sure you have the right filtration systems and all your generators. And, you know, that's that's where you, you, you focus your finances. So now you have these embryos and you were saying that when they first started this technology, they would take out one cell on day three, because at that point it's only like eight or 10 yeah, or 12 eight cells. To 10, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you take out one and you test it. And nowadays it's done later, correct? Exactly. So we now have the technology and again, the, the media, the, the the fluid that embryos grow in, everything has advanced so much. Also, our incubators, the air quality, that we are now really able to grow embryos efficiently to day five. Mm-hmm. And by day five, I actually mean five through five to six. We right. say day five, but really it encompasses both day five and six. What that means is it becomes, um, the embryo becomes, uh, you know, has a form that we call a blastocyst. Mm-hmm. And that means that the inner cells, which are going to become the baby ultimately, have kind of separated from the outer cells we call the trophectoderm that's going to become the placenta. So there's already started to be some, you know, um, identification of which cells are going to be what. Right. Right. So as opposed to on day three, the cells are all can still all become anything. So they have what we call differentiated into different, Mm -hmm. you know, um, destinies. Mm -hmm. Um, On day five, you now have cells that have been identified as this is going to be the placenta, this is going to be the baby. And then there's fluid in between. So at that point, we now know, you know, we can actually choose to take cells specifically from the area that will become the placenta versus the area that will become the baby. And what's the advantage to that? Is it because it it lowers the chance of sort of harming the embryo in the process or because you could take more cells or what is it? So at that point, there's about a hundred cells. So Mm -hmm. you now take about five from a hundred versus one from eight. So Mm -hmm. you're taking fewer. If you were to actually biopsy the inner cell mass, Mm -hmm. you would ultimately destroy the embryo got it because you know ultimately that you can't replace that and that's kind of a big question does the outer cells actually always match with the inner cells you know because we are we except in um research studies which are research you know done on embryos to figure out some of this science you know we assume that the outer cells represent the inner cells and i think most of the time they do yeah we have the same 
conceptually the same thing when we do a CVS. And we do CVS, we're doing a biopsy, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 weeks of the placenta. And it's the same thing that 99% of the time, the DNA in the placenta matches the DNA in the baby. And by that, by 12 weeks, it's only 1% of the time that it's right. not a match. It's, I imagine it's probably it's, higher it's more earlier even. in gestation. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you can almost think of PGTA or pre yeah. genetic testing as like an early form of a test like a CVS or right. an amnio. It does not replace that, right. but it kind of gives you similar information right. that those tests do in terms of getting a chromosome count right. understanding is this a chromosomally normal male or female. Conceptually, people I think get this, right? It's 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 really cool obviously that you can do this and people who are doing IVF already make decisions about whether they want to test the embryos or don't want to test the embryos and there are people who sometimes choose to do IVF because they want to test the embryos in advance. But I think some of the confusion is because the type of genetic testing done differs, right? There's different types and they now have different names, right? We used to call this PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Then we came up with the term PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening, I believe is the S. And now it's PGT pre-implantation genetic testing. But of course, since we're doctors, we have to have subtypes to confuse people. <laughs> so there's PGTM, PGTSR, and PGTA. So really just to make people confused. Yes. So, but those essentially are differentiating the, the three reasons someone would have genetic testing. Exactly. So, so let's go into those three reasons. So the PGTA aneuploidy, right. which is what you were discussing right. before. Is it Down syndrome? Is there an extra chromosome, a missing chromosome? You know, something like mm-hmm. that. And is is that something that's always done or it's something that people have a choice to do? So it's something that people have a choice to do. And there are certain situations where, you know, it may be advantageous. Mm-hmm. Some of those situations commonly, what you might hear is if you have a history of a current miscarriage. Right. And particularly if you've had miscarriages where you've you know, you've tested the pregnancy that passed and you know that that pregnancy had a chromosome abnormality, right? right? That's one, you know, scenario where it really clearly would have benefit Mm -hmm. that hopefully if you find a genetically normal embryo, you can overcome that problem. Right. Another thing is just people with advancing reproductive age where we know, you know, after 35 and then as you move through your late 30s, early early 40s, just a high percentage of the embryos women make are genetically abnormal. Right. So you could end up waste kind of wasting time putting those embryos back right. that are abnormal or even them implanting and ending in miscarriage because some of these abnormal embryos will implant, but right. then ultimately ha- cannot end up in a baby. So right. you can potentially lose time. Right. So the best And thing, also it's a lot of heartache and exactly, sadness and everything. And, and yeah. it's very difficult for patients. And right. the patients that had a history of miscarriages are often the ones that feels the most strong. Right. Because they're scarred. They, they're <laughs> scarred and they're yeah. like, if I could do anything that may prevent me from having right. to go through that again, that's what I want to do. Right. Ultimately, it's really best when you have an option. So an older woman with good egg counts right. where you will have a choice, like, right. you know, you'll get four embryos in a 39 year old and, you know, one to two are going to be normal. And right. 
you know, about like, let's say one's going to be normal. Three are going to be abnormal. Right. You could find that normal one. You find one. that normal one and not just kind of put in embryos. Right. Until right. you get there. And also in the past, they would just, instead of testing, they just would put in all four. So that's <laughs> a huge yeah. advantage of testing. So, yeah. you know, it used to be exactly that to make up for the fact that so many embryos are genetically abnormal as you get older, you know, in a higher percentage. Well, if you put back more. Right. Then, you know, you make up for that. So if you are at 35, let's say this is what it used to be, you're at about a 50 50. Right. For, you know, well, if you put in two, now you kind of right. are, you know, kind yeah. of making up for that right. 50 right. 50. But 25% of the time you get twins. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and ultimately we were creating a lot of health issues for mothers and babies. Right. The field had to kind of look itself in the mirror and say, right. You know, are we actually doing something positive for society by, I mean, you know, not only twins, I yeah, mean, triplets, triplets yeah. quads. Those guys... are the, that was the heyday. Between, let's say, 10 and 20 years ago, it was, I mean, routinely people would show up. I'm pregnant with quintuplets. I'm pregnant with quadruplets. I'm pregnant with triplets. You know, and then that's when all of the the pregnancy reductions start, you know, getting very busy because someone's like, I can't carry six babies. Like it's, you know, and so it was a whole situation. And. Now with the testing, it's it's much, much lower. I mean, you guys are probably putting in one embryo almost all the time yes. now, I would imagine. We are one of the, I'd say, most compliant IVF yeah. programs I know. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I joined, because I was so yeah. proud of that. Ultimately, you know, once the field started realizing we're creating all of this, you know, um, health issues with with these multiple pregnancy, you know, we started putting strict guidelines on how many embryos should be transferred by age. Right. But ultimately, and it's very clear from the guideline, if you have a genetically normal embryo, the age goes out the window. Right. Put in you one. are putting in one. Right. And so one thing, and there's certainly controversy around PGT testing, some clinics are more in favor, some clinics, you know, are, are less in favor, some clinics are more like, no, let's just put in more. And, right. you know, are more in favor of, you know, not testing and just putting yeah. in more and, you know, but what, no one can argue that it helps increase the rate of one healthy baby at a time. Right. Okay. So one reason you might test is to check the total number of chromosomes, like you said, sort of, you know, make sure it's it's genetically normal, so to speak. The The other kind is this PGTM, uh, which is right. monogenic, which is, which means like a very specific mutation in one gene and one chromosome, like yes. a disease, like, like Tay-Sachs, for exactly. example. Right. So this is where the technology, I think, becomes really exciting yeah. and, and kind of, you know, something we, we are able to do to really help our right. patients immensely. There's two different kinds of diseases that we focus on. One would be an autosomal dominant disease, right. so where the patient or the husband actually come affected with that right. disease. They have a condition. Right. And in that case, you know, 50% of the embryos, you know, if you go back to yeah. high school biology and like the Punnett squares. Right. So in that case, 50% of the embryos that are even chromosomally normal are right. going to carry that disease. Right. right. And an example of this might be some of the um, hereditary cancer genes. Right. Like, like BRCA. Right. BRCA. Exactly. It's a very personal decision at that point. A lot of people say, well, I, ha I have this and I'm happy and I'm living a fulfilled life. They don't want to go through the testing. Others say me or my husband has this and I really want to prevent my children from right. having to, you know, to go through whatever medical interventions right. and risk that comes with it. And then, you know, we basically have these patients meet with a genetic counselor and really go right. through 
not just again the medical side of it, but a lot of the yeah. you know psychological kind of emotional side of what right. this means and right. you know self worth and all, yeah exactly. all of these it's complicated. So you know we have social workers and a whole yeah. team that works with people around some of these conditions, and again some are much more clear than others, especially when you have like adult onset diseases right. versus something that you know is going to be horrific for a, a child that right. is clearly you know right. not something that you right. would consider right. the reason it's tough life. with the with the autosomal dominant ones is the diseases that are really, really bad. They don't tend to, they wouldn't live to be having That's children. True. So if they walk in as adults undergoing IVF, usually the condition is such that clearly you can live with it. Mm -hmm. And that's why those people are like, well, you know, is it something I want to sort of, you know, take out of my family Temple, line right. or, or not take out? So, you know, for example, um, like dwarfism, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so like little people and it's, it's, complicated because mm -hmm. on the one hand it they can do genetic testing to make sure their children don't have it but they may not feel that way because mm -hmm. they may feel that they're they have an identity you know this right. way and they're very fulfilled and happy and you know again and they may feel that it's almost the opposite that they don't right. want to do that and that's why it gets very complicated for these types of conditions right. because these are conditions where you live to adulthood mm -hmm. i found in my own practice that people typically, if they know they have a cancer gene, they're more than happy to sort of get it out in that sense. Cause they're like, this is annoying. If you know, it, it worst case it's dangerous and at best case it's annoying because you're screened forever. You know it, but if they have a natural condition, it is complicated. Yes. So again, there's a lot of like personal choice yeah. that goes into that. And it's, you know, something that we have a team to help yeah. work through those decisions. Right. So that's one set of conditions. The other set is what we call recessive disorders right. where, you know, you need two copies of the gene, typically one from, you know, each parent, right. and that they both have to pass on that gene. And then you have a one in four chance right. that your children will be affected with that condition. Right. So this is like, you know, Tay-Sachs is a exactly. classic one. Cystic, cystic fibrosis, fibrosis yeah. is another one. And and these tend to be, cystic fibrosis is, is an exception because now the therapies are better. Mm -hmm. But something like Tay-Sachs is uniformly devastating. Exactly. And neither of the parents has the condition. They just carry it. So they're perfectly fine. This is one of the reasons we do those massive carrier screens exactly. either before or at the front end of pregnancy to find out which couples are at risk for this because you wouldn't know because it's not a condition that runs in your family because mm -hmm. no one's had the disease. They just carry it. And so you just find out like, whoa, I didn't know that. That must be a, a common reason you're doing this kind of genetic testing. Yes. So, you know, every patient that walks through our door mm -hmm. and walks through, I, I think, any New York City fertility practice is right. going to be offered or I actually recommend yeah. what we call expanded carrier screen where, you know, you get screened to see if you carry one of two to three hundred yeah. conditions that are the most common conditions we see in humanity. So, you know, ultimately, if you end up coming back as a carrier and your partner comes back as a carrier as well. We of the then, same thing. Of the same thing. Right. We then give you the option to actually screen embryos to find the ones that 
didn't inherit both copies. Right. And it's cool because this isn't something, you know, normally a geneticist is testing, right? If you're looking at an embryo, the kind where you're counting the chromosomes mm -hmm. is a certain technology where you like look under the microscope and count the chromosomes. But this, mm -hmm. you have to like specifically know the condition and send a probe exactly. in. You can't like say, oh, just test me for everything because there's too many conditions. Exactly. You have to know which condition so you're looking for. With these, you actually have to what we call build probes right. that are specific to your DNA. So DNA, you know, has these small variations from person to person. And most of them are normal variation. And then right. you have some that are mutations that cause diseases. So, right. you know, they actually need to build a probe specific to your variations. Right. So it, the probe knows exactly where to attach to when right. they put it together with the yeah. DNA. So that process, you know, takes time. And sometimes it's even beneficial to have your parents involved yeah. where they want to, you know, to further map exactly yeah. where it is and get that kind of genetic fingerprint that, you know, right. is specific to you. They sometimes want your parent, which I find some patients get really freaked out about. Yeah. Some are like, no, no, no. <laughs> Parents are not involved. Not unless they're paying for this. <laughs> <laughs> Others are more than happy. So, you know, that that's another thing. Yeah. You know, nothing is ever everything comes with these like layers in right. our in our fields of, you know, right. anxiety for people. And another very interesting thing is I always have couples, you know, one could be from India and the other ones from South America and they they'll carry the same thing where you're yeah. just like what? <laughs> How'd that happen? Or like ones from Japan. Yeah. And, you know, ones from Europe and yeah. they carry the, and you're just like, wow, you know, you really never know. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's. I mean, we used to, yeah, we used to test people <laughs> for a specific, you know, genetic to carry genetic diseases based on, you know, their ethnicity, their ancestry, you know, mm -hmm. oh, if you're, you know, from the Mediterranean, we'll check you for thalassemia. And if you're, right. you know, from Ashkenazi, you yeah. do this. And, and, we did that because sort of uh, the likelihood was higher. But what we've learned in these expanded screens is, A, we're all mutated. And B, <laughs> it's just an issue where and so much of it is random, mm -hmm. like we said. And you're just yeah. like, what? That's a disease yeah. <laughs> from Northern Ireland. You're yeah. from Japan. I, yeah. I don't know how to explain that, it's, you know, uh, but. <laughs> yeah, because these things can go, these things can be passed down for literally hundreds and hundreds of years before it shows up in a family. Because unless you coincidentally you know, procreate with someone with the same mm -hmm. mutation and then still it's one out of four, even right. on top of that. So this, that happens. So that's, that's another reason. That's a pretty cool reason because some of these diseases are, are really, really devastating. Mm -hmm. And it's something that parents generally don't, you know, wish to do that when they're having IVF. And this is also one of the reasons some people specifically do IVF. Oh, yes. Right. Like they don't need IVF otherwise. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't want to take a one in four chance. Right, because you could test in pregnancy right. and, and have then, an abortion, exactly. but they don't want to do that, or either because they don't want to have an abortion, or they just don't. They're like, "Why would I do that when I can, you mm -hmm. know, sort of fix this on the front end?" Or you know, abortions off the table for them, and like, I don't want to deliver a right. baby with this condition, and so they they come to you for IVF, mm -hmm. like IVF, in order to do the testing. Yeah, so we get yeah. this in two different ways. We get a lot of patients that come having already gotten this, the expanded carrier mm -hmm. genetic screen from like your office. I've gotten a lot of patients mm -hmm. from your from your practice yeah. that come with yeah. the genetic screening yeah. or are really, you know, this is pretty standard now. 
at least in New York, because yeah. we're kind of ahead of the curve, you might say, <laughs> you know, that, that people have caught on right. that this and is spending something... patterns were ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is something it's better to do before you get pregnant. Sure. So if you happen to catch someone when they come to you and yeah. say, Oh, I'm planning on becoming pregnant, you know, yeah. that's actually the time to do it. Right. You know, I got it done when I was pregnant and thank God I carried something. My husband didn't, that was that. And mm. the funny thing is between my two children, which are three years apart, I did it again. Right. And to update I, it. And another, a new thing ca- I yeah. carried came up. Right. Right. And not because like, you tested not, different because the, yes. the, the test was invented. They right, added developed. on, yeah. you know, not just new diseases, but new mutations within sure. the disease. So I find I have patients, they'll come, they carry two things like four years ago, and now they carry five things. They're like, yeah. what's going and, on? And I, I'm told they're about to expand from like 300 to about 500 oh, plus. Yeah. Wow. It's, okay. The, it's it's coming. It, but, the, <laughs> but you know what ends up happening though is, and you can look at this and obviously glass half full, glass half empty, even though there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mutations, what ends up happening on a couple level is the likelihood that any given couple is going to carry the same condition. It's on the range of one to 2%. So on the one hand, that's pretty low, meaning anyone's doing this testing, the likelihood it's going to be fine. You know, they'll carry something, they'll carry something else and they're good. But one to two percent is real. I mean, we see we deliver a thousand people a year. So, you know, one to two percent is 10 to 20 of them. And so it's something that's why you have to screen because you would otherwise never find out. And it really does work. I mean, you can avoid a lot of really bad diseases by doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we we actually run into the same issue. What I was saying with the autosomal dominant, where some things are like, you know, maybe they don't want to do it. It's not something that's life-threatening. Like right. some of the diseases, even the recessive diseases right. are just, you know, some minor, you know, maybe, you know, likelihood to have high cholesterol or, you know, where it's yeah. going to be an adult onset issue or, you know, it's not something that's very life-altering and yeah. run into the same issue of, do they actually want to go through IVF for this? So right. it's starting to trickle into the recessive diseases as well that as they expand it, also I'll find there's a lot of complications where in one will carry one mutation, but it's not, it's like not a very bad one. Right. It's only if they, the other person carries a very bad one. Right. But if they both carry the mutation that's not so disease causing so you end up like it's getting more and more complicated and more and more hard to interpret sometimes right so that's where our genetic counselors really come in and they're geniuses i'm always (laughs) every genetic counselor they're like i mean their memory is is and on the lab level they i mean there are discussions in the genetic lab community there is a community of genetic labs believe it or not (laughs) Uh, i'm not in that community but they exist where they discuss and debate what conditions should and should not be on these panels. Because mm-hmm. for exactly the reason, there is a lot of thought like don't put on conditions that are not significant illnesses because people are not going to get the best counseling potentially. And mm-hmm. they may end up undergoing IVF when they really don't need to or having an abortion when they didn't really need to or, right. or just being super worried. And so they there's, there is an effort to try to choose which ones go on. But you can imagine different people would look at it differently. So there is de- there is debate about it, but that is something they're aware of. Mm-hmm. Meaning there are more things they could put on the panel that they choose not to. Right. For good reason. So, and then there is a third one I assume is less common, this PGTSR for structural rearrangements and translocations. Right. Yeah. So that one is less common, but something we see. So right. that is actually more for when 
pieces of the cro- of chromosomes have right. rearranged. So you still have the correct number of chromosomes right. overall in the parent. But, you know, let's say a piece of chromosome one swapped with right. a piece of chromosome 20. They traded, yeah. They traded. And so when you try and reproduce and you try and sort the chromosomes mm. appropriately to get the right number in your offspring, right. you run into issues because the chromosomes right. of one parent don't actually line right. up with the chromosomes right. of the other. You know, that is a really specific case case that you know is not it's more of a you know something you hear about in the ivf community but to the lay person is probably not as important to right or common thing that you'll hear about it's, it's very it, specific it's almost like the pgtm but instead of a small mutation it's like a big chunk exactly type of thing but the exactly. same concept okay so question number one when you're doing these things how accurate are they right you're testing the embryo and you're saying this baby has a condition or this embryo has a condition, this embryo doesn't have the condition. So what is the accuracy? And I assume it differs based on whether mm-hmm. you're doing the, the the M for a specific mutation versus the aneuploidy one for like the number of chromosomes. Right. So, you know, nothing is ever 100%. Right. But the PGTM gets right. very close, you know, it could be greater than 99% right. accuracy. It's pretty impressive. But there are situations, like I mentioned, where, you know, maybe... They say, you know, if your parents involved, we can get a couple more percentage points accuracy. Right. But maybe a parent's deceased or right. the parent is not, you know, right. involved or in. Right. But it's very know, high. It's Either very, way. very high. Right. So there are things like that's one thing I know can make it a little higher. But right. ultimately, it's considered a really excellent test. Right. But but the one for aneuploidy, the number of chromosomes, there's a lot of controversy over the accuracy. And, and why is that? Like, why isn't that like 100% of the time when you test, you'll know this is abnormal, this is normal for the number of chromosomes? So, you know, we're, we're ultimately only as good as our technologies mm-hmm. and the ability to, you know, when they do these tests, they amplify the DNA, which means they, you know, replicate it many, many times. And then they use, you know, machines to kind of take out, there's often like noise, they call it. So right. parts that don't replicate and, you know, ultimately... You know, you have to rely on the technology, which is not perfect. I know traditionally we were much, you know, the focus was really to make sure that we don't call abnormals normal. Like that was the main priority that we don't say, oh, this embryo is not affected with Down syndrome or not affected with trisomy 18, like another one that could produce a baby that has a lot of severe health issues. That was more of what was considered to be, you know, the worst case scenario is giving someone a a reassurance that this is a normal embryo and then it comes out. You know, so I think we call that the positive predictive value. We were much more concerned at at maximizing that to, again, you know, in the high 90s. The thing is, is that we still recommend the same screening that every other patient goes through who did not have this technology. So we do not say that this replaces first trimester screening for Down syndrome, you know, however, you know, that's done with blood work and ultrasound. And these patients should still be offered CVS and amnio the same as every pregnant patient should be offered CVS and amnio. So, you know, our societies have been very clear that we need to make sure the OBs know that this is not a replacement for genetic screening. You know, it's a good test with very high rates of it being correct, but we still are humble enough to say 
still go through all right. the normal testing. I think also when when you have the DNA of the embryo is originally, right, it's based on the, the egg and the sperm, right? So that's when the parents, but then the cells start dividing. Mm -hmm. And when the cells start dividing, you're not going to find like a new mutation that shows up in Tay-Sachs, right? But sometimes some of the cells will divide and then two of them will be a little screwy. Like one got an extra, one got a missing. So right, what happens right. is like if you're if you're looking for extra and missing chromosomes and like let's say you take out one cell and it's normal, the assumption is the other mm -hmm. 99 cells are also normal, but that might not be true. Right. Or on the flip side, you get one cell that's abnormal, the other 99 aren't necessarily abnormal because it's not that they're always 100% the same at that point in gestation or whatever, right. embryology. Yeah. And so I think what ends up happening is people sometimes get confused with these things. They're like, well, you know, the, they put back an abnormal embryo and had a normal baby, or I put in a normal embryo and had a, you know, and, the, and I miscarried. And that part, you know, there's something called mosaicism, mm -hmm. which is when not every cell is the same. And so when we're human adults, that happens, but it's very rare. But when you're an embryo, it's much more common. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is something that as the technologies for um, reading the mm -hmm. DNA have right. gotten better, you know, every advancement comes with its own set of challenges. It's gotten better, but now it's gotten so good that we can sometimes even identify different genetics, cell lines right. within one embryo. And there's still actually an argument how much of it is really, again, just the technology, an issue with the technology right. versus real mosaicism. But no one argues that there is definitely something called mosaicism where you actually have cells with different genetic makeups within the same embryo. Right. But people argue how much of how much mosaicism actually exists. Right, so people right. argue that, but everyone agrees that there is some amount of mosaicism. And this is where the counseling can become very complicated. And for patients who are not, you know, again, they get like a real crash course in right. embryology and in genetics. And, you know, you get really like, sometimes we just have so much right, information too much. that you're like, how much is too much? So essentially, when we have mosaic embryos, we used to, and some still do say, these are these are abnormal, we will not transfer them. Right. Slowly, some clinics and some kind of pioneers have said, you know what, some of these cells are normal. Who's to say the normal ones won't end when? up yeah. dividing at a more rapid pace and kind of dictate the future of this embryo? And they, you know, went forward and Trans started transferring this embryo. So there's now, you know, hundreds to thousands of mosaics embryos that have been transferred. Yeah. And really what we know is that they have a lower live birth rate. Right. So, you know, they're less likely to implant, but when they do end up in a live birth, they are really finding that they end up in genetically normal yeah. babies. We just delivered, you know, a baby that was from a mosaic embryo. Fine. Everything's yeah. good. It's um yeah, it's interesting because if according to the my understanding is, you know, when they take out, let's say, five cells or they take out a bunch of cells, if as long as eighty percent of them are normal, they call the embryo normal. Yes. Meaning that it's it's assumed uh -huh. that up to nineteen percent of the right. cells will be abnormal. So technically they're all mosaic. They just say, well, it's low enough that it's it's right. fine. Well, that yeah. they actually consider noise right. from the technology. Exactly. That they said past 80%, you know, right. we can't 
you know, use, you know, yeah. past that, we're not going to call it abnormal. Right. And if, and if, if, and the other end, if 80% are abnormal, they just say it's abnormal, right. but 20 to 80%, that's, that's a wide range mm-hmm. in the mosaics. You can imagine that there are definitely people who are 60, 70, 75% normal. They call mosaic that probably will be fine or like, right. you know, and on this, you know, and you so have to just look at those and decide. this is where, you know, again, our genetic counselors come in. So yeah. if your mosaic tries to be 21, right. you know, that's Down syndrome. Right. You know, or mosaic trisomy 18 or 13, which are other genetic right. conditions that right. could end up in a live birth. Those are not embryos that we would implant right. because, you know. They're not going to miscarry necessarily. Right. Like a trisomy if, 2, would right. not, you wouldn't have a baby. You would exactly. just miscarry. So we we implant ones that it's an all or nothing, right. we call it. That it's either going to miscarry or be a genetically normal right. baby. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so we have already guidelines that our, our society put out that really already tell us, you know, these are the ones that are safe, mm-hmm. safer for transfer, and these are the ones to avoid. With this, the, the one thing we didn't mention which is doing this, parents can select whether they're going to have, you know, a boy or girl, XY or XX. Yes. Two questions for you. Number one, how many people ask you to do IVF specifically for that reason? Like, you know, I have three girls, I want to have a boy, let's do IVF and do it. And the second question is for everybody else who's just having IVF, how much does that come into play? Doing IVF specifically for sex selection Mm -hmm. is something that is not that common, but we do see. And I have some patients who have come to me for that. Mm -hmm. The other question, if people are doing IVF anyways, it's a part of almost every consultation that it's brought up and spoken about. And there's some at least conversation or interest that that the patient or opinion that the patient has about it. And I would say a large majority of our patients end up doing some form of sex selection in their reproductive process. So Mm -hmm. the most common thing we hear is for the first child, put the best morphologically normal embryo in. Right. Typically, though, for the sec for the second child, I'd say more often than not, they have a preference. Right. But the best boy in the right. best yeah whatever but it's not always the opposite so ah. <laughs> i have many patients that have a girl and are like either oh i have this sister i'm really close with mm. i always wanted that for my kid or i have all this girl stuff i don't want to buy a bunch of boy stuff right you know or whatever it is i just want another girl right or the the flip side yeah. or they say i want you know i have a boy i want a girl but you know I'd say the majority of our patients for the second, you actually, when you have one sex and you want another, you call that family balancing. Mm -hmm. So this concept of family balancing is something that, you know, the majority of our patients end up doing. Right. Um, Either the family balancing is choosing other sex, but we get a a lot that are happy with what they have and just want to go with that. Do you ever have any situations where you start feeling troubled, like ethically? over the sex selection and maybe they're, again, parents have, everyone's got their own reasons, but where sometimes someone will say something, you're like, ooh, you know, (laughs) like that seems like a very strange reason or something like that. So, you know, the whole concept of sex selection has ethically gone through stages in the US. Mm -hmm. It used to be ethically like, you know, frowned upon in our field. And it's come to the point where it used to then, you know, move to, well, if you're doing IVF anyways, then it's reasonable versus, you know, but to do IVF for that, 
was maybe people found ethically troubling. But now we've come to the point where we think, you know, believe in patient autonomy. And ultimately, we don't have a problem with that, except maybe a specific doctor does. But as a society, you know, we've we've said, if Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you know, ethically participate in that. The real issue becomes, and what you have to think about is that in countries where one sex tends to be preferred, right, you can actually cause some societal problems, which some countries are actually going through right now. You know, some countries that had limitations on the number of kids, you know, actually have a gender imbalance in play currently, which makes the dating scene very right. <laughs> good for the women, right? Because men typically, you know, were a preferred in certain societies. And so people were having abortions or, you know, probably not using gender selection, but they were doing other things that were horrific to tip the scales to having a boy. So, you know, the societies all universally say if as in, in a country where you are changing the normal ratio of male and female, if that is going to happen, then it's not considered ethical. But studies in the U.S. have showed it does not do that. Right. Meaning it's 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 the same. Yeah. 50% prefer boy. One, yeah, right. Yeah. And okay. most people use it for family balancing is the right. most common thing. So, you know, it's more about wanting the the variety. So, you know, in, in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, I've have I heard, you know, I don't like love hearing people say things that might be taken as demeaning towards one sex and occasionally you might hear something where you're like okay you know this does sound right maybe we should address your view on women before (laughs) before before we deal with the ivf or something like that but that's rare yeah i would imagine that's rare i mean Um, you don't i mean yeah i would imagine that's rare i'd say the majority like i said is is for is a second child Mm -hmm. situation where they have a preference for the second child is just the most by far the most common thing i personally in my practice have not seen any sort of weight towards one gender which is nice which is nice to see (laughs) are there a lot of cases or any cases of people who do pgt to select uh an embryo who will eventually be a baby who'll be an organ match for either another, yes. for a sibling yes. or for a parent. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can do that. That right. is something that. Like if you have a child who has yeah, leukemia, leukemia and, and, yes. yeah, and you have another baby, you get exactly. to either let's select a match to do for, a donor. You can, and that's yeah. something that that's is been done. done. Wow. Yes. That's pretty crazy. Wow. I Rachel. know. Science fiction mm. is here. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to see you. I love seeing you. It's a wonderful I thing. I agree. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. It's fun to be here. I'm I'm so lucky to have met you again in medical school how many years ago. <laughs> yeah. More in more, a chance more than I'd like happening to think. on the on labor and delivery. A chance happening. It's because you met Rebarber. He's exactly. a, he recruited you. Found you, brought you in, brought you into the fold. Good stuff. Well, I'm sure we'll see you again. Thanks for coming. And uh, how about that? We're doing PGT. That's exactly. a new one. Until you change the terminology on us again. Well, we might go back to S. Oh, jeez. I heard that <laughs> we now, I heard there's now like a, you know, we're, we're thinking of going backwards. There's, yes. To me, it's like, just pick something and go with it. Yeah. You know, but doctors like to How about do just this. PG, pre-implantation genetics? I like that. I'm going to rate it PG. We're rated PG. That's it. These embryos are rated PG. That's amazing. Oh, dude. All right. I'm going to have to copyright that. Exactly. (laughs) All right, Rachel. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. 
To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.